Welcome to the Fax Machine. My name is Noah, and I'm here alongside Emily and Rob to share with each other and with you a handful of fantastic facts pertaining to this week's theme, where there's a will, there's a way. In keeping with this theme, we'll be talking all about wills, the legal documents that direct how a deceased person's estate is to be distributed, the crazy things some people have left in them, and the crazy people who have done the leaving. Uh, before we begin, a bit of news. We are now on Spotify. Woo! Yeah, yeah, so please subscribe to Fax Machine, and don't forget to rate and review us, preferably well, on whatever platform you use. And of course, don't forget, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod, and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. The episode will begin, as always, with an exchange of three facts, followed by a pub-style trivia quiz, loosely inspired by the theme. And with that, I'll send it over to Emily for our first fact. Emily, take it away. Thanks very much, Noah. So my fact for this week is that Clyde Tamba, American astronomer and discoverer of Pluto, will be the first human to venture beyond our solar system. Uh, so to rewind for a minute, uh, for my fact, I opted to focus on the portion of wills and testaments wherein the deceased can specify any special burial arrangements or requests. Um, and there are lots of unusual ways, uh, ranging from sweet to thoroughly gross and creepy, that people can and have decided to be buried. But my favorite one is that, if you have the money and the inclination, you can be buried in space. So this is only done with cremated remains, um, which are contained and then flown up on secondary payloads that either make uh, suborbital trips, so they stay within the Earth's orbit for a few months to a year and then get sent back, um, or uh, more rarely and expensively, um, they'll make trips to the moon or even into deep space. Whoa, who's sending them back? Like, that's an <laughs> alien conspiracy right there. Like, we're sending our dead bodies up, and then somebody is presumably, you know, well, so in fairness, probing them. <laughs> Oh my god! Okay, <laughs> to go back, first of all, they're cremated remains, so... I mean, I know that a lot of people think we're not alone in this galaxy, but I kind of wish we were after hearing that. <laughs> they don't come back after being sent into deep space, Okay. to be fair. I mean, or, or they haven't yet. Ooh. The truth is out there. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. Nice. <laughs> The human theremin over here. <laughs> That's my professional wrestling name. Fantastic. Because you put a hand near me, I go, ah! <laughs> <laughs> but, but I want to get back Gosh. to the fact that people send a jar of their ashes into space only for it to crash back to Earth eventually. I think so, it's more sophisticated than a jar. Yes, exactly. Okay, a jar with a rocket <laughs> okay. on it, Yeah. I assume. <laughs> yeah, essentially. So you don't often send the entirety of your ashes because that actually ends up being very expensive. Uh, so Elysium, uh, one of the front runners in this unsurprisingly niche space burial market, as they say on their website, in the last poetic moment, uh, the spacecraft will harmlessly re-enter the Earth's atmosphere blazing as a shooting star. So they kind of sell the, you know, return of your loved one's ashes as a, as a positive and kind of romantic thing, which is kind of nice. Um, but generally, you send people send up uh, mere grams of themselves. So, sending up grams of grams? <laughs> <laughs> 
So to put a price point on this, which was honestly more reasonable than I actually expected it to be, um, sending up a gram of yourself uh, will set you back around $2,000. Um, so if you send all of your ashes, then it's much more expensive than that, of course. Um, and a cool little bonus perk that Elysium happens to offer is that while the satellites that carry cremains, as they're called, can't be seen from Earth, they have a mobile app that will let your loved ones track your orbit in real time. But, but yeah, so anyone who does include a space burial as a stipulation in their will would find themselves in very distinguished celestial company. Uh, so the first person he buried in space was actually Gene Roddenberry, who you guys might recognize mm -hmm. as the creator of Star Trek. Yeah, um, He was flown up in 1992 on the space shuttle Columbia, actually. Um, and other notable space burials include Timothy Leary, uh, the Harvard clinical psychologist whose advocacy of psychedelics like LSD and psilobison um, were central to the 60s counterculture, and whom President Nixon once referred to as the most dangerous man in America. Uh, also, Gordon Cooper, uh, one of the astronauts in Project Mercury, also known as the first manned space program in the U.S., so predating NASA. And James Doohan, who was the actor who played Scotty on Star Trek, which is so amazing because he was beamed up. Yeah. Scotty was beamed up! Um, so are there also just random people in space? Like, people who are like, oh, all these famous space people, I want to go with them, but have no real, they're not famous? Yeah. No, if you, I mean, if you just go through um, any of these companies, like Elysium, I think Celestis was another one. Uh, then this any person can do this. Hmm. So Clyde Tamba, who I mentioned at the beginning, is also buried in space, though in a more unusual way. Um, so to give a little background on him, he grew up in the Midwest as the son of farmers, and as a young man with his hopes of going to college dashed by a hailstorm that wiped out his family's crops, uh, he took it upon himself to pursue his interests in mathematics and astronomy, um, and built his first telescope of many from scratch at the age of 20, um, even digging a gigantic pit uh, to shelter from air currents and temperature fluctuations using just a shovel that was on the farm. He subsequently sketched his views of Jupiter and Mars through that telescope um, and sent them to the Lowell Observatory, who, recognizing his intellect and ingenuity, uh, offered him a job. And in 1930, after one year on that job, he discovers Pluto <laughs> as a moving object in the background of a series of photos taken by an astrograph at the observatory. Um, he did go to college after that, and honestly, with a discovered a planet on his application, my guess is that he had his pick of colleges. <laughs> so that would have worked really well back then, maybe, but nowadays, Pluto's a dwarf planet. <laughs> like, I don't know. It just doesn't look as good. Fair no. Enough. It's, uh, it's tough out there, man. It's tough. <laughs> Um, but after that, he did go on to have a very long and successful career teaching astronomy and discovering lots of asteroids. Um, he's remembered as being one of the best visual observers in the field of astronomy, and also for promoting uh, the investigation of UFOs after witnessing a few on multiple instances. Okay. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I was waiting for a comment. I mean... Are you, are you gonna tell him he's wrong? This is the guy that found Pluto. Yeah, right? he is he's one of good at his job. the best visual observers. If I were to believe anyone, it would probably be him. All I'm saying, the truth is out there. All I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> How do you distinguish yourself as a visual observer? Like, do you have good eyesight? Like, what? He would get those like spot the five differences magazine games with the two <laughs> pictures, and he would just boom, 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 crushed like. Yeah, Clyde Tombaugh was, like, all about going between his, you know, scanning the skies for celestial bodies and just reading highlights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he would just go to the dentist's office and be like, I I've already gone through ten of these in, like, five minutes. Where is my dentist? You know? Are you saying the tooth is out there? <laughs> <laughs>
Does Clyde have like an exit date that we can look forward to? Like we know when he's leaving? He he does. So the way that he's actually leaving our solar system is on the New Horizons space probe, uh, which was designed to fly by the Kuiper Belt, where Pluto is located, and take pictures. So a small sample of his ashes are aboard. Uh, so when it departs the solar system and enters interstellar space in 2040, more or less, oh, okay. he will as well. So if you were really motivated and you died like right now, you might be able to build a ship and beat him out of the <laughs> solar system. It's a new kind of space race, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so as my uh, last anecdote about space burial, there is one person whose eternal resting place is the moon. Um, so following the death of American geologist and founder of planetary science, Gene Shoemaker, in 1997, some of his ashes were brought to the moon by the space probe Lunar Prospector. Uh, the capsule containing his remains actually has some really lovely designs and personalization that commemorates his life, including inscribed images of a meteor crater that he discovered, uh, the hale Comet, which was the last comet that he and his wife saw in the sky together. Uh, his capsule also has the following lines from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, which I think just kind of nicely summarize the sort of romantic idea of being buried in space. And when he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars. And he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. I didn't find anything else about space burials. I did find two or three interesting stories about after, like the wishes of bodies after one's death on Earth. But some two of the two or three of the interesting stories that I found were about individuals who um, were not famous nor particularly rich, but they had asked in their final arrangements that their their funeral not be held with a with a casket. But rather, in some cases, and I'll just give you some examples. Um, these are all taken from Mental Floss, and so you can you can check their <laughs> fact checking. Nice. Um, but there was one football fan who his funeral was him embalmed sitting in a lazy boy chair with a loop of Steelers football playing on a television in front of him. <laughs> There's another of a man who is embalmed on a motorcycle. And he he led his funeral procession to the to the cemetery, <laughs> riding his motorcycle. And a third one, and there's a picture, which is it's it's worth looking at if you're interested. Um, this is just like the real weekend at Bernie's. Um, <laughs> Miriam Banks was the life of the party, even at her funeral. It says. Um, instead of a coffin, the deceased sat at a table with a cigarette in hand, her favorite beer and whiskey in front of her, and they, the service included R&B music and spinning disco balls. <laughs> this week I learned that on June 19th, 1891, author Robert Louis Stevenson, in his will, left his birthday to a friend's daughter, Annie, who was upset because she was born on Christmas Day. Oh, that's really cute. Yeah. yeah. And so it's an interesting story about how these two even came to know each other. But Robert Louis Stevenson is perhaps best known for his novels uh, Treasure Island and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He was a world traveler. And so in his late 30s and 40s, he traveled the Pacific, and that inspired a lot of his seagoing novels. Um, and it was on this voyage when he came to Samoa that he actually met the man who was once acting governor of Samoa, uh, and his daughter, Annie. And that was when they developed a relationship as friends. And Annie, the angsty teenage daughter <laughs> that she was, was very upset to have been born on Christmas Day because, as everyone knows, when you're born on Christmas, your friends don't celebrate your birthday. They celebrate Christmas. If, you only get half as many presents. Yeah. Like, they always say you're going to get two times the presents. Like, one for Christmas, one for your birthday. It never, it never happens that, that Total way. fallacy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so Annie was upset. 
And Robert Louis Stevenson couldn't stand to see the girl be upset. And so he wrote, not long after, uh, as a 40-year-old man, so not actually um, bestowing this in his will, but it continued from that moment on in his life. He said, I, Robert Louis Stevenson, and then many, many qualifiers that he included (laughs) in this particular document, being in sound mind and pretty, well, I thank you, body. (laughs) Did you really say that? He did. (laughs) (laughs) And so... He said, in consideration of Miss Annie, or Miss A.H. Ide, the person he was talking with, heretofore known as Annie, we can refer to her, he said that he gives to her, he transfers all rights and privileges in the 13th day of November, formerly my birthday, now, hereby, and henceforth, the birthday of the said A.H. Ide, to have, hold, exercise, and enjoy in the same, in the customary manner, by sporting of fine raiment, eating of rich meats and receipts of gifts, Compliments and copies of verse according to the manners of our ancestors. I like the idea of <laughs> getting rich meats. <laughs> what is that, like Scrooge McDuck or something? <laughs> <laughs> so wait, so sorry. To, to clarify then, he bequeathed this before his death? He did, in So fact. what was his birthday following this? So that's a great yeah. question. And some might assume that it was Christmas. There's actually, I couldn't find anything written about what he would celebrate going forward. It seems that he may have foregone a birthday altogether. Um, In the original document, actually, so it's known that he was 40 years old at the time this was written, but he said, considering that I, the said Robert Louis Stevenson, have attained an age when, oh, we we never mention it, (laughs) and of no further use for a birthday of any description. So he pretty much was like, yeah, I'm over this. Like, it's not cool. And there's not enough candles to, like, do this. Forget it. It's amazing. He gamed the system. And so Stevenson also was very particular about how he wanted his his former birthday to be celebrated. And he went on to say that, um, I charge her to use my said birthday with moderation and humanity. Et tamquam bona filia familiae. The said birthday not being so young as it once was and having carried me in a very satisfactory manner since I can remember. So did she go from 14 to 41? Ooh, kind of like Freaky Friday situation. Yeah. I don't know. So I bet Robert Louis Stevenson is ageless. And for, throughout history, you know, he'll just switch birthdays with like a 14-year-old boy or girl. And then he'll just live as that person. And the reason we haven't heard much about Robert Louis Stevenson after this is that it was a Freaky Friday situation. And he went on as, as Annie. And Annie was then in Robert Louis Stevenson's body. She was very confused, and she probably just wandered off somewhere. And then Robert Louis Stevenson, who, of course, now was Annie, was just like, yes, I am a 14-year-old girl. (laughs) This was before body swap movies, so people (laughs) had no context. What a pleasant story this is, I will tell forever. (laughs) (laughs) Or on the other hand... Annie was a super gifted writer, and then this old man switched bodies with her and made him famous. (laughs) Yeah. But Annie's family, the Ides, continued to keep Stevenson's birthday and celebrate it November 13th. And so she bequeathed it to her granddaughter, who recently, in the last few years, gave it to a current three-year-old girl who now has November 13th as her Stevenson birthday. That's sweet. It's pretty neat. So it's their Stevenson birthday. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure. Because it it ceased to become a legal document in this last transfer. It was just the the woman said she can have it. But like the three-year-old, I don't know, has any paperwork to support (laughs) November 13th as her birthday. So that three-year-old has two birthdays then. Yeah. That's nice. Nice. And Christmas. (laughs) And Christmas. Kids got it all. If she's lucky, her parents will get divorced. You get two Christmases. 
And so Stevenson made the stipulations, and he said, in the case that Annie neglects to contravene the above conditions, I revoke the donation and transfer my rights in the said birthday to the President of the United States of America for the time being. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the President at the time? I'm going I'm to take a shot in the dark and say that it was Benjamin Harrison. I'm going to look up. But I'm going to just say that. <laughs> okay. Because that's what trivia hosts do. <laughs> okay. 1891, Benjamin Harrison. Is Benjamin Harrison? Benjamin Harrison, baby. Okay. Wow. Nice. All right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> uh, so anticipating the eventual lapse of responsibilities for the Ides family, I looked up uh, the list of presidents' birthdays to see if any of them already had the birthday November 13th. Uh, turns out none of them do. Um, however, the closest was there are actually two presidents that share a birthday. That is November 2nd. Uh, that was Polk and Harding. So I thought this is actually a really good opportunity to bring up the birthday paradox. Uh, and that is the really counterintuitive notion that the odds of having two people with the same birthday uh, in a room uh, with like 20 or more people is actually very, very good. Um, and this basically comes from the fact that like when most people are told this, they're like, oh, that can't possibly be true because the odds of me having, you know, in general, the odds of me having the same birthday as someone else is about 1,365. But that's not the question. The question is any two people in a group of people, uh, a group of say 20 or more people having the same birthday is the odds of you having the same birthday as someone else and plus the next person's odds of having it and plus the next one. So it actually just grows cumulatively. Um, uh, since there have been 45 presidents, the chance that there would be two people with the same birthday in a group of 45 is 93.39%. But the first person to become president who had the same birthday as a previous president, Warren G. Harding, uh, was the 29th president. And at the time, I'm not sure this totally works like this, but I'm just going to say after 20, in a group of 29 people, the odds that two people have the same birthday was about 67.17%. So still pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's actually way, way more likely than you'd think. Um, so that means we're due again. Yeah, it's coming yeah. up. I actually, it was something I was thinking about is what are the odds that like two people share it? And I uh, that was not available on the online calculator that I used, and oh. so I gave up. <laughs> um, so I found some uh, news stories of uh, people with the same birthday and the various odds associated with it. So this is a, a mom, a dad, and their baby all had the same birthday. Uh, and the odds, uh, just if you know they're randomly spread throughout the year, the odds were 1 in 133,000. Um, for comparison, getting hit by lightning is about a 1 in 10,000 chance. Wow. So it's pretty good. Uh, more impressively, there's a grandmother, a mother, and a son all have the same birthday. And the odds of that are roughly 1 in 49 million, uh, which is also quite good. Uh, it's pretty interesting. But to paraphrase a comedian I love, Tim Minchin, uh, to assume that your 1 in 49 million chance thing is unique is to vastly underestimate the number of things that there are. Hmm. So 1 in 49 million, there's way more people than that. Surely has happened before. Um, oh, wow. But it is pretty cool, like, you know, in the little pockets of probability where it actually does happen, just to, to notice it, tell your friends, and then go about your business. So that means there should be six such families in the United States right now. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if that is, because there's three people involved in it. So I'm not... Ooh, interesting. Let's not work this out yeah. live. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, just to wrap things up, um, I wanted to get back to the fact that I said that Robert Louis Stevenson was sailing around the Pacific and he made his way out to Samoa, um, which at the time was an American territory. And it actually has a really interesting kind of history. And so it seems like there have been humans on the island of Samoa for over 3,000 years. And we have pretty good information about this. Um, however, 
the man Henry Clay Ide, who I'd mentioned was Annie Ide's father, who was sent out to become the um, the presidential commissioner, essentially the governor of Samoa at the time. Uh, when he did this, Samoa was kind of in an interesting place. And so Samoa was territory of the U.S. It was later in 1899 split between the U.S. and Germany. And so we hmm. co-habitated and kind of co-owned the what islands. What year? Uh, 1899. Okay. Yeah. So it was part of a treaty that settled up a lot of European and American differences in the late 1800s. And they said, oh, and then we'll just take half of Samoa. And the U.S. said, yeah, okay. And that's kind of been the U.S.'s um, handling of Samoa ever since is just kind of like, sure, why not? Samoa, sure. Um, and just kind of unfortunate, because uh, Samoans have actually been very upset about this. And there have been uh, recent news articles about it, and they they don't have the right to vote in many U.S. elections. But um, they are U.S. citizens. But they are U.S. citizens. Right. So it's a kind of contentious problem. And they serve in the U.S. military. Um, yeah. And so it, it's a, a bad kind of loophole that they've been worked into. But Samoa's history in the U.S. is actually fascinating. And so, again, I spend a lot of time reading about infectious disease, um, for my the class that I teach and not for my own personal pleasure. <laughs> sure, Rob. Sure. I do, I do just like the way that influenza rolls off the tongue, but <laughs> uh, literally, that's just how it's transmitted. <laughs> but, Gross. <laughs> but so Samoa has an amazing distinction. It's one of the few countries or territories on Earth in the 1918 flu epidemic that had zero casualties. And this is because the governor of Samoa at the time quarantined the island to any US or foreign ships. So no one came in and no one came out for a matter of almost a year. And they did this to prevent the flu from getting there. And if you compare that to places like Hawaii that had almost 20% of their population die from Spanish flu, it was a really life-saving move. Because for port cities, that's where the flu really kind of moved through and ravaged places. And so he said, nope, don't come here. And Samoa is a really important port, so that was a very consequential decision. Um, and one last thing about Samoa that I thought was kind of interesting, uh, that ties back actually to our space fact from a minute ago. Ooh, um, right. A lot of ships have gone through Samoa in the course of World War One, or in the course of World War Two, and in the course of the Pacific Wars. Uh, interestingly, there have been five other ships that came through Samoa. Um, do you know where they had gone prior to that? Space. Space! Cool. <laughs> so five of the splashdowns of the Apollo program, Apollos 10, 12, 13, 14, and 17, were uh, within a range of 100 miles of the Samoan Islands. It's on purpose, right? Because they have to go recover them. Mm-hmm. And so I assume they have a naval base in Samoa. Yeah, and so it, it was roughly, I mean, their trajectories are pretty accurate, all the mathematics, but they know roughly the range where it will splash down. And uh, they don't always hit the target exactly, so they bring them to whatever is closest. But uh, Port Pago Pago in Samoa was the site where five of the Apollo missions were brought back on land. Wow. Just one last other thing. There's this just adorable letter that Annie wrote back to Mr. Stevenson. Um, and it includes the line, On November 13th, I had my first real birthday celebration and dinner with, quote, sporting of fine raiment, eating of rich meats, and receipt <laughs> of gifts, compliments, and copies of verse, according to the manner of our ancestors, as the will most satisfactorily provides... The conditions of the legacy have been complied with. My old name was as unsatisfactory as my birthday. I am now Annie Louisa, so Aww. that my new birthday cannot revert to the President of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Rob. And it's my turn. This week I learned that Charles Vance Miller's will provoked the Great Stork Derby. 
in which the bulk of Miller's estate would be bequeathed to the woman in Toronto who could have the most children in the decade after his death. So Charles Vance Miller was a Toronto area lawyer and financier, but he was also known as like a practical joker in his life. Um, he had this, you know, sort of attitude that he didn't really like the, what he was be regarded as kind of the prudish, puritanical even attitude of Toronto. Uh, and so he preferred the company of like seedier types around like the racetracks or like people who were like ran breweries and stuff like that. Uh, so when he died, his will had specifically mentioned that uh, a very large amount of money for the time would be given to the woman or women uh, in the Toronto area who could have the most babies in 10 years. Um, and so right off the bat, like not a lot of people knew about it. Um, and what really happened was maybe like five or six years in, uh, newspapers started picking up on it and publishing these stories. It was during the Great Depression, which in Canada was really bad as well. And just this notion that, like, you know, all this money was out there for the taking, you know, if you just did this thing, which is basically have as many babies as possible, which during the Depression maybe wasn't the best idea. <laughs> yeah. um, it, but it did capture the imagination of a lot of people. What really happened was when the story became more widely known, parents of families that were already really large, that had, like, five or six kids already in the last, like, five years or so, <laughs> who were like, whoa, we might actually be in the running for this. Let's keep having babies. And... Like, you know, as, as bad it could be if you have a lot of mouths to feed and no money during the Great Depression, um, the amount of money that you could get was extraordinarily large, um, especially for that time. So if a woman had won by herself, she would have gotten 500000 Canadian dollars, which is an extraordinary amount of money when you do the, uh, the conversions and uh, adjusting for inflation. But as it happened, uh, actually, there were four winning families. Um, originally, more than two dozen families took part and entered. Seven uh, of those were disqualified for various reasons, including uh, for having children who were found to be illegitimate or improperly registered. One devastating situation uh, with a family who had ten children compared to the winning nine children uh, had a set of twins that they listed as a single child uh, and so were disqualified from that, which seems like exactly the opposite thing that you would want to do. Because they're clearly two different children, but for some reason, at the hospital or the registrar, they were listed as one child, which makes no sense if you're trying to have the most children possible. And it's just this, like, you're so close. Um, Also, that makes no sense just... Yeah, I mean, just at all. It makes no (laughs) sense, but, like, it's especially devastating when you are losing out on this, what would end up being, you know, millions and millions and millions of today's dollars. Because um, I guess otherwise you'd be like, which one is it? And you're just like, I don't care. They're the same. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> They're both the same. So so there were four winning families, the Timleks, the Nagels, the Smiths, and the McLeans. They each had nine children. So each mother received uh, about 125000 Canadian dollars uh, in 1936. So uh, adjusted for inf- inflation, like I mentioned, and then, of course, converted from Canadian to American dollars. Uh, that would be roughly $1.7 million in today's money. Wow. Which, when you think about, like, in the depths of the Depression, like, that was not only life-changing, but that made you incredibly wealthy. Like, yeah. I mean, of course that would make you incredibly wealthy now, but just, like, compared to this situation where, like, up to, like, a fifth of the population was unemployed, this was a totally life-changing uh, bequest that had the possibility to change you and your family's lives for generations to come. Right. Um, so it had definitely inspired a lot of people. But that's still quite a gamble. Yeah. You, you yeah. better win. <laughs> getting second in this race is pretty bad. Precisely. <laughs> and if you have eight kids, then ooh, then you're in a worse situation than before, you know, this guy passed away. Yeah. Anyways. 
So I was super curious because it seemed to me like a, like a feat to have nine children in 10 years. Like that's something that like, you know, would be difficult to do. Specifically 18 feet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's not even a lot of feet is what I learned. <laughs> because do you know what the record is for natural births from a single woman? Yes. It's in like the 30s. Oh my God. Right? <laughs> Isn't it? It's it's very very high. Are you talking about birth events? I meant birth uh, children. Number okay. of children. It's very high. I don't know if it that's is. Right. You were you were closer to the number of confinements or times where she gave birth. Okay. So okay. in twenty seven births, um, a woman who is only identified as the wife of Fyodor Vasiliev <laughs> of Russia, who died in seventeen eighty two, gave birth to, and I'll give it to you the way it's written: sixteen pairs of twins. Seven sets of triplets, four sets of quadruplets for 69 children. Just absolutely stunning productivity, I guess, is the word you would use there. And then, like, this sort of thing is rare. Uh, Every hundred years or so, you get, like, you get a woman who gives birth to, like, 30-plus children. Yeah. Um, Reading about the next generations, there's an Italian woman in the 1800s who had 15 sets of triplets. Wow. And I read it the first time, and I was like, oh, okay, 15 in triplets. And I was like, no, 15 sets of 45 children, all of them triplets. 15 sets of 45 children, all of them triplets? Like, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is a riddle now. (laughs) 15 sets of three, I should say. Okay, so a total of 45 45 children, all of whom were triplets. Yes. Wow. I'm just just stuck on that. Because, I mean, like, it's rare to in the normal course of human physiology have triplets at all. So how do you have these few crazy outliers? Well, I think that people who have twins and triplets, et cetera, are more likely to have more. And I think that that if you are a twin or a triplet, et cetera, you are more likely to have twins and triplets. So there's some inherited component. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's poorly understood, but it's definitely like that. That correlation has some merit to it. So I guess you you could easily kind of game this kind of system if you knew there was money on the line and then you, you knew that you were particularly good at having multiple birth yeah. like, events yeah. <laughs> so I looked up uh, I, I tried to follow some of these people I thought it would be really interesting to find like where these children are now and I just hit a, hit a wall mm. I couldn't find anything um, but I did find one uh, I guess he was the grandson of one of the original mothers or, you know father and mother mm-hmm. pairs um, and he actually only has one child um, and was asked by a reporter uh, who was just interested in this story, you know, maybe like 50, 60 years later, and he said, uh, yeah, I would have had more children, but there's no money in it anymore. <laughs> 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 so he clearly had a good sense of humor about it. I don't know if you guys had this kind of immediate reaction that I had, but this sort of contest in a will idea reminded me of a movie right away. And it's a little before, I'd say, your time, youngins. But have you ever heard of the movie Brewster's Millions? Oh. No. Okay. It is it's a great like Sunday afternoon like ABC movie that they throw on. Um, there's a Richard Pryor movie. Uh, Richard Pryor plays a baseball player who's just stopped playing baseball and his wealthy uncle leaves him three hundred million dollars with the stipulation that he must spend thirty million dollars in the next thirty days. Wow. And he, there are all these rules that only the lawyer can tell him about. But basically 
he can't tell anyone he's doing it. He can't donate it all to charity. He can't like buy things of like particular like wealth that he could then sell back later. He like actually just has to spend it all on like on wow. something. And so it's it's an absolutely ridiculous movie. At some point, he figures out the best way to spend a lot of money is to run for office. Oh, wow. And so he winds up, I think, and I don't have the plot, but he runs up running for mayor of Chicago, but, like, just telling people, like, don't vote for me. I just want to, like, buy commercials and stuff. <laughs> just really cool movie to I try to win. I assume this film predates Amazon? Um, it's from 1985, so, yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's spending $330 million in, like, one click now. But yeah. <laughs> in a similar sort of stipulatory sense, um... There's a, a woman named Leona Helmsley. The name might be familiar. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. we, we are not far from a Helmsley Tower. Yeah. Um, so the hotel magnate Helmsley, um, the husband was kind of a well-known, very generous philanthropist. Uh, he put a lot of money into the hospitals in New York. Um, Leona was known as the Queen of Mean. She was one of those <laughs> just kind of like stuck-up New York socialites. Um, and so she left in her will all these stipulations for her children. Uh, first of all, she left $12 million in trust to her Maltese dog. And so that's the type of person we're dealing with. <laughs> but then she left all... How, many, how much is that in dog money? <laughs> <laughs> but she left to her grandchildren large sums of money um, in the millions of dollars that uh, required that they visit the grave of their family members every year. And she said, if David or Walter fail to visit the grave during any calendar year, her or his interest, her or his... David and Walter. Okay. <laughs> her or his interest in separate trust established for her or his benefit shall be terminated at the end of such year with the principal treated as though they had then died. So kind of kind of brutal for, for your family members to give you money. So there were actually a couple other crazy stipulations in Miller's will. Uh, for example, about 450000 U.S. dollars worth of stock in a horse racing track. Uh, was left to three rabidly anti-gambling advocates, including <laughs> what uh, is apparently a position, uh, the Secretary of Temperance, Prohibition, and Moral Reform for the Methodist Church. Yeah. <laughs> About $9.7 million worth of stock in the O'Keefe Brewery was left to seven prominent prohibition advocates, provided that they participated in its management and drew on its dividends. Yeah, so basically like a lot of the things he was doing was trying to like put a lot of the people in his community who he thought were up on their high horse, and in some cases who he thought were hypocritical, to put them in a position where they would either have to publicly admit that they're full of crap, or you know, ri- you know lose out on this massive amount of money. And it was just this thing that this guy could do. Uh, and finally, um, probably his pettiest uh, stipulation in his will, three men who hated each other, uh, were granted joint lifetime tenancy of Miller's vacation home in Jamaica, provided they all move there and live together. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and with that, as always, we will end with a pub-style trivia quiz, loosely inspired by our theme for this week, which is wills. So, if you guys are ready, we'll get started. I think we wills do quite well. Could have ah. just said will. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you see, it was, it was far better this way. I don't loosely, think this is going to go well. Loosely tied to the theme. Wow. <laughs> All right, so question one. The earliest drafts of what science fiction film were known as the Journal of the Wills? That's spelled W-H-I-L-L-S. Ooh. So we're looking for, like, um, something that was from the point of view of, like, people who died in space. So, like, sounds like they reconstructed the story from their... Right, from their writings. 
Okay. I'll also point you to this is the earliest drafts of this science fiction film. It doesn't it wasn't called this in the end. Elements of this were carried forward, but it's not you're not necessarily going to be able to get it from the title. Okay. Mm, necessarily. Mm. Are we are we on the right track with our thinking? So more more like Alien than Star Wars is kind of where I'm going with it. Um. More Alien than Star Wars. Yeah. What's more alien than Star Wars? Sorry, more... More like the film alien. The film alien. Oh! Like, Star Wars is pretty alien, from what I recall. Should have been more clear there. Okay. (laughs) Well, I will say it is is a franchise. Okay. So it's not just one film. Hmm. Although it it was one film at first. (laughs) (laughs) As as sometimes happens. Yes. Okay, so maybe I'm thinking like either the Wills were a race of people or a family in space. So if there was like a Swiss Family Robinson space movie, <laughs> that would be the be one that. to go for. Um, so the Wills were conceived to be unseen chroniclers of events in this galaxy, given giving this writer's work a supposedly pre-existing mythology in the style of Tolkien's Middle Earth. Oh, interesting. So now I'm just all in on Space Odyssey. Sure. 2001. 2001 of Space Odyssey is incorrect. Oh. The answer is Star Wars. Oh. No kidding. Oh, man. Yeah. Huh. Um, the, so this is the Journal of the Wills is the collection of uh, notes and, and drafts that was sort of the that later, much later, became Star Wars. Um, and the, the notes begin, quote, This is the story of Mace Windy. <laughs> <laughs> a revered sure. Jedi Bendu. So it's like originally called Jedi hyphen Bendu. So there's like a lot of like weird things. And of course, huh. Mace Windy comes back later in the prequels as a character Mace Windu. Interesting. Yeah. And eventually the concept of the Wills as this like unseen, you know, as, as he says, unseen chroniclers of events um, sort of eventually became uh, the notion of the force and this like unseen force that permeates all life and you can control and stuff like that. Oh, wow. So it sort of evolved into that. Okay. Uh, you can also see uh, evidence of that in Rogue One, uh, where they uh, on the the planet. Well, no, no spoilers, but on, on one of the planets they're on, uh, there's a place called the Temple of the Wills, and uh, the two uh, uh, guys they meet on that planet are the Guardians of the Wills. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, so I couldn't have been more wrong. <laughs> <laughs> We approached being right. That's okay. Took a hard That's left okay. turn. <laughs> it's only question one. There's plenty of time left to uh, write the ship. So, question two. What does the television series The Last Man on Earth have in common with the film I Am Legend? It's about the last man on Earth? Both are, are ostensibly about a last man on Earth. All right, so too obvious. Okay, Let's see. Back. They both grow beards at some point. I believe so. (laughs) They're both... Oh, the stars are named Will. So? They're Wills. The last Will. Ah, the last Will! (laughs) You got it. All right. (laughs) See, I was going to say the Wills found a way. Okay. Wow. Yes, okay. Oh, if they're they're holding a Bible, then it's the last Will and Testament. (laughs) (laughs) Wow! So, yeah, of course, The Last Man on Earth is starring Will Forte. Uh, and I Am Legend starred Will Smith. Both of these are like post-apocalyptic movies where uh, they think they're the only people left on Earth. And so, of course, the answer to this is that they are both last wills mm. um, on the theme of last will and testament. That's clever. Yeah. I like that. Thank cool. you. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> According to scholars, who is the worst U.S. president named Will or William, etc.? Let's see. There's a, there's a good list here. 
I mean, I'm hoping it's not William Henry Harrison because he really didn't get much of a chance. Well, but he, <laughs> he, did, he did like screw stuff up, right? Because he gave that long, boring speech that didn't give him pneumonia, that didn't kill him. Let's be clear. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, all right. Yeah. Wait, did it not? Then. That it's very, it's widely believed that he died from cholera. Wow. Oh, I yeah. had no idea. How did he yeah. get a cholera from a speech? He didn't. Oh. This, the speech is completely unrelated. <laughs> he was just a boring person, and then he got cholera. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's it's famously you get cholera from being boring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big William Henry Harrison fan. He didn't do much for America. He was in office for two weeks, wasn't he? He, he set us back 30, two weeks. Oh, 30 <laughs> days. I think he was a month, thirty month. days. Yeah. Thirty one days. Thirty one days. Yeah. All right. Well. Well, it probably helped to think of the presidents named Will or William. Yeah, there's also Bill Clinton. Uh, but I'm asking for the worst. And also William one. Howard Taft. Oh, that's Correct. true. Taft. I don't know much about Taft, other than that he was large. There's also William McKinley. <laughs> yes. And oh. he was so bad he got shot. Well, I was. <laughs> I don't know who being bad is what gets you shot as a president. <laughs> hey. <laughs> you know. All right, so we've got, we got four. Okay, so just yeah. think about, so like, what would make a presidency unsuccessful well, impeachment i would say would be a pretty clear sign Ooh, yeah so, but is it worse yeah. than dying because <laughs> well certainly the absence I mean, of accomplishments did, did, would be a, a a bad presidency yeah did you say which scholars okay. said this uh scholars i said that <laughs> just, just yes the, the so collective there are many surveys of scholars. presidential scholars um on especially you can find on wikipedia there's a big table of all of them over time uh, and I'm using the uh, like the overall ranking, which sort of aggregates the most recent ones. Okay, I'd say McKinley did stuff. Taft kind of he got stuck in a bathtub. Yep. William, uh, oh, wait, wasn't that Garfield or was it Taft? No, it was Taft. It was Taft. Yeah, because he was massive. So basically, your dilemma is you have to decide whether uh, dying early is worse or better than either not achieving much during a full presidency or achieving bad things during a full presidency. Hmm. Precisely. It's kind of like, do you leave? the country as a net zero or at a detriment or at a gain? Well, Clinton left the country at a net zero, which was the last time our budget has been balanced in 20 years. <laughs> so it's pretty good. Yeah. I, so that's yeah. actually... Um, we'll start taking them off. Bill, yeah. Clinton's, okay. Bill Clinton's ranked pretty highly. Yeah, yeah I would okay. say... Uh, not... not I, I wouldn't... I, he, let's say he's much higher than this This William. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I just think it's... So maybe just inaction is the worst thing. I think then. it's William Henry Harrison. Okay. Yeah. All right. William Henry Harrison is correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he died 31 days in office. A tip should have been that I knew exactly how many days he'd been in office. <laughs> and, uh, it should have. But it's also, he's still not the worst ranked president of all time. Uh, so it's... some people apparently would have been better off dying early. Uh, those include Millard Fillmore, Franklin say. Pierce, Andrew Johnson, Warren G. Harding, James Buchanan, and of course, in last place among presidents as ranked by presidential scholars, Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, the best among Williams is Bill Clinton, um, but if you consider any president with Will in the name, it's Woodrow Wilson. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's fair. So, question four. The first, second, and third laws of inheritance were established in 1865 in order to codify the rules associated with the passing down of what? Hmm. So it might be titles. Okay. Um, like, ah, okay. so it might not be American at all, even. But well, I'll tell you, the person who codified these was not American. Hmm. Curiouser and curiouser. Okay. Okay. So let's say that it was some kind of, like, dookie or kingship, kingship or some... Something of that ilk. Sorry, what did you say? Dookie. <laughs> Dutchie. You surely meant like Dutchie, right? Yes, I did. Okay, so, okay. <laughs> okay. 
1865, making rules about inheriting stuff. Yeah, he was actually Austrian. Oh, okay. Okay, if you're handing down titles, or if you're handing down maybe like succession rank to your right. offspring. First, so what, what kind of things can you pass down to your offspring? Um, land, wealth, titles, your... Your assets. In 1865, they didn't know much oh. about genetics. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or did they know quite a bit about genetics after 1865? Oh, dear. Oh, is this Mendel? Yes. Oh, yes! <laughs> ah! <laughs> the first, second, and third laws ah, of inheritance were established it. in 1865 okay. by Gregor Mendel to oh codify the rules associated with the passing down of genes. Oh, we're bad side. Yes. Oh, bad. <laughs> These are the laws that Gregor Mendel proposed to explain the heredity of traits that he observed in his peas. They are, one, the law of segregation, that during oh, gamete no. formation, the alleles for each gene segregate from each other so that the gamete carries only one allele for each gene. Two, the law of independent assortment. Genes for different traits can segregate independently during the formation of gametes. And three, the law of dominance. Some alleles are dominant, while others are recessive. An organism with at least one dominant allele will display the effect of the dominant allele. I thought you were oh, talking dear. about dookies, and it was... <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. I will say that was a pretty <laughs> underhanded question, because we've been talking about like inheritance and stuff. And I, I wrote that very specifically to try to... Like, <laughs> Steer you the wrong direction, that and I, I apologize. You succeeded, sir. <laughs> that was incredibly rude. Oh man! All right, so question five: When Roger Brown died in 2013, he left 3,500 British pounds to seven of his closest friends, so they could do what? Hmm. Seven of his closest friends. Seven of his closest friends. He died. He left 3,500 pounds uh, to his seven closest friends, so they could go do what together? What can you do in a group of seven? I don't, it's not important, it's not important that there are seven of what's them. What's the angle he here? Ha- he happened to have seven close friends. Okay, okay. Go have a fun weekend together and celebrate my life. Nailed it. Really? Yep. Oh, the answer was get dr- super drunk somewhere in Europe. Nice. Wow. <laughs> um, Excellent. So they did that. Uh, they went to Berlin and they got just absolutely hammered. Uh, and apparently one of the seven said, we would like to formally apologize to Roger's two sons, Sam and Jack, for taking away some of their inheritance. We spent most of it on beer. The rest we wasted. <laughs> <laughs> Question six. Why did August come after July? Oh, I think I've heard this before. Oh, I'll God. tell you. Well, well, I'll give you a hint. Uh, July left everything to August in his will. Yeah, because it's named after Julius and Augustus Caesar, who came in that uh, order. right. Um, is that it? Yeah, it's basically it. Okay. Yeah, 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 All right, yeah. So, <laughs> so basically, yeah, you nailed it. Um, so Julius Caesar, July is the month named after him, and uh, he left everything, actually, and made his heir his, his grandnephew, Octavian. Uh, and so he w- later became the emperor of Rome uh, under the name uh, Augustus Caesar. I was really thinking it was going to be one of those six afraid of seven sort of deals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. I'm like, oh, it's real here. All right. But no, just history. Question seven. In what novel, by whom, does the court case Jarndyce v. Jarndyce appear concerning the fate of a large inheritance? Jarndyce v. Jarndyce. Who are these Jarndyces? So I'll give you a hint. The case has dragged on for many generations before the action of the novel, so that late in the narrative, legal costs have devoured the entire estate, and the case is then abandoned. Hmm. Hmm. Jarndyce. Sounds very American. Isn't it? Okay. Great. <laughs> okay. See, that was just a trick to get more information. <laughs> yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> oh, I can't believe you got it. <laughs> um, 
Okay, where's there a novel with legal proceedings? Um, well, I'll tell you, it was uh, possibly based on the real-life Jennings v. Jennings that began in 1798 and was abandoned 117 years later in 1915. I'll say it's also someone we've mentioned on the podcast before. So I was Dickens? It is Charles Dickens. Yeah. Okay. okay. How many uh, Charles Dickens novels do you guys know? Uh, Besides Great Expectations, Great Expectations and a Christmas Carol. Tale of Two Cities, Bleak House. That's it. <laughs> Oh, there you go. It's not one. <laughs> okay, I know nothing about the plot. So. Yeah. Which one was it? So Bleak it's House. Bleak House by Charles oh, okay. Dickens. Yeah, and in this, um, the the court case itself is sort of a backdrop, and it's like over time, basically, it's used as uh, this thing that's like, wow, this is still going on. Holy crap! Like this is so <laughs> depressing that like this you know whole you know this family is going at each other's throats trying to get this money, and then after all of it, it's been entirely subsumed by costs of uh, tra- you know of adjudicating it. Question eight. Who left Anne Hathaway his second best bed in his will? Oh, William Shakespeare. Yep. Yeah, Yeah, so uh, William Shakespeare's wife's name actually was Anne Hathaway. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's, if you read his will, there's this really, really funny moment where he is just going on and on about all the bequests he's leaving to all these different people, including to like, you know, like eight to ten of his homies. He's leaving like the same amount of money to buy them a ring. And then he leaves his uh, daughter Judith a ton of different things and just goes on paragraphs and paragraphs about all the things he's leaving. And finally, it says, quote, I give unto my wife my second best bed. I wonder who's using the first one for. I was going to say, where did that one go? <laughs> all right, and with that, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to check out our podcast on social media, uh, on Twitter and Instagram, at Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. And also, we are now on Spotify, so please go rate, review, and subscribe. We'll see you next time.